Listening to the quarter to three movie podcast for Fred. It's the name of a movie. Not talking about the emotions. The movie Dread. Uh, I am Tom Chick, and I am joined this week by Christian Malinsky. Well, that's my name, but my clan calls me Kerma. And with a Dread tagline. Again, I'm not using that as an adjective. It's a proper noun. With a dread tagline, Kelly Wand. <sighs> That's the Prometheus tagline, Kelly Wand. I, I don't I think there might be some sort of copyright infringement going on there. No, I did it differently. Okay. That's true. There was a little bit of a different slant on it. Uh, let's talk dread. Now you may not have seen it. We don't want to spoil it for you. Uh there will be spoilers later, but stick around for a moment, because Dingus is now going to tell us a little bit about it without ruining any of the content. So, Dingus, don't spoil anything. What's this Dread thing that, that we saw this week? All right, well, this week we saw Dread to 3D, mm. a 2012 British South African science fiction action 3D comic book remake movie <laughs> about a judge who plays it by the book and a rookie straight out of the academy. Uh, it was directed by... Huh? What are you saying? Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to spoil anything. They have an academy? I thought it was, it was law school. It was directed by Pete Travis and written by Alex Garland, mm. based on characters created by John Wagner and Carlos Esguera. Mm-hmm. It stars Carl Urban, Olivia Thurlby, Lena Headey, and Wood Harris. Kelly Wan, do you have any editorial comment for any of those four names? You know which one I'm thinking about. All right. Kelly Wan's a big Wood Harris fan. That's what I've heard. All right, Dredda 3D is rated R for strong, bloody violence, language, drug use, and some sexual content. If the drug's not real... Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Drug use, like fictional drug use. They should work that out. Like, it might encourage kids to use slow-mo. Is that the concern? Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, it maybe in the future it will exist, and people going back and watching this movie from 2012, you know, the, the well, NBA I, has to keep that It'll up. be like a drinking game where they take slow-mo and then watch the slow-mo parts. Well, there's there's also the implication of other narcotics being used earlier in the movie that aren't necessarily slow. What? Yeah. Say what? Huh. Yeah, I don't remember any of that, Dingus. I'm gonna, you're going to have to explain that to me later once we get into the spoiler bits. All right. All right you guys so, do uh, your ticket taker here? Askings this time. I am no longer consulting with ticket takers for advice. Uh, but if you guys have any anecdotes about that, how did your ticket takers uh, sell you on Dread? Wait, why are you stopping? Uh, I just did it the once for. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so there is no reason. <laughs> but you'll uh, answer like that is a reason. Well, I didn't. I, I. It's not that I'm stopping so much as I didn't start. We just did it for the one expanded podcast. Yeah, but you did it once. That's starting. And ending. Mm, it's like, you know, 
<laughs> it's like I didn't uh, I didn't want to make a habit of it because I go to the same theater and if I <laughs> if I annoy the same you know if I keep annoying Crystal who's the woman who sells tickets they might not let no me. it makes it even awesomer and then we get we go is this the week Crystal's gonna crack on Tom <laughs> I don't want to uh, I don't want to make anyone angry over there I actually there I like my theater quite a bit I occasionally have to borrow a pen from them. I will come in and I will forget my pen, and I'll. And therefore, asking them what a movie's about will be. That's you don't mind borrowing a pen every week. If you go, hey, what am I seeing? That I, will... I don't mind if they know me as the guy who, for some reason, needs a pen as he goes to see movies. Uh, but I don't what you're seeing. Definitely don't want to cross that line. Yet. I don't want them thinking, oh, here's that weird guy asking uh, dumb questions about movies. That again. is weird. Needing yeah. a pen constantly is so not weird, though. So but... did you, Kelly Wan, ask a ticket taker something? Yeah. And what, what pretty dumb if I hadn't after all that. What kind of information <laughs> did you get from your ticket taker about Dreadfree? I think it's like psychics versus zombies after nuclear war. Wow. His and movie is kind of awesome. I know, and then I went, isn't everything? And then he laughed and he was away. And are you guys hanging out now? Are you buddies? No. <clears throat> all right. Dingus, did you ask your ticket taker anything? Uh, yes, I did. And she said, I don't know. And she pointed at the guy standing behind her who also worked there. And he's kind of schlubby looking guy. And she goes, do you know what Dread is? And he goes, yeah, it's, uh, it's set in the future. It's, did you see that one from the early nineties? I think it was, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone. And I acted dumb. And, um, he said, well, it's, it's that it's, it's future where these judges, uh, and he gave me a, a thumbnail synopsis and he goes, it's a really good movie. And it, and he, then he gave me a rotten tomatoes breakdown of it. He said, and he broke down Rotten Tomatoes. He said it wasn't at 100%, and then a bunch of other people weighed in, and this is the number now. And then he let me on my, he had this whole thing that he was ready to tell me. It was amazing. Man, they were ready. Dingus, I think you were ambushed. I think they were ready for you. Uh, they win. I forfeit. And I went to the super crappy theater, too, and they were totally ready for me. I was just, I was flabbergasted. Dingus got pwned. All right. So it was yep. when you least expect. Uh, so, Dingus, let's see. You gave us the rating, uh, so I think we're good. Uh, now, this guy, I don't, I can't imagine this ever having 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I was a little surprised. Uh, that might be a spoiler. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 77%. So, and that that's all the reviews that are included on that aggregate. Of all of them, 77% of them are positive. However, on Metacritic, and this this gives you the average rating for reviews that use numerical ratings, it's at 58 so oh. a fair number of people like it, but they don't like it a lot. Maybe that's the uh, what you could extrapolate from those numbers. That's what those numbers mean. Yes, that's how I would they interpret like it. like it, but not a lot. That, that would be my reading of those data points, yes. And this guy did say, I, I didn't want to step on your data, Tom, mm -hmm. but he did say 77%. He just did that standing there, not looking at a iPhone or anything. He was just totally surprised. By Man, guy. he's good. What was his name, Dingus? We should credit this guy. His name was Olivia Thurlby. <laughs> uh, well, here's I'm where... part of the 77%. Well, let's get to that in a moment. That's a spoiler. But here's where the news is not as good. Uh-oh. Dread did not even make the top five on its opening weekend, which is a little painful. Uh, what? Dread was beat... Yeah, it was beat by uh, The Trouble with Curves, Finding Nemo, uh, End of Watch... Uh, house at the end of the street on the left or whatever that Jennifer Lawrence thing is. It was even beat by Resident Evil's second weekend. 
Uh, so, <laughs> ouch. All around, ouch. Uh, Dread opened at sixth place with a paltry $6 million. Uh, so this is officially a, I'd say, a box office disaster. Damn. Yeah. Wait, wow. so what's our takeaway from that? That not many people were sold by this uh, ticket taker's enthusiasm, the guy that Dingus was dealing with, that he can only do so much. That they, Alex Garland's plans for the second and third movie are not really going to go into Oh, wow, the Dread Trilogy may, might have been strangled in the crib. Yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, that is the non-spoiler portion. It had the of, same numbers as Resident Evil, though, didn't it? Kind of? uh, actually, it was close. Like, Resident Evil, I think, was 6.7 million, and Dread was 6.3 million. So uh, why is one... Why? Well, 6.7 is a higher number than 6.3. <laughs> Wait... Not in Canada, it's not. Um, that's a, I would say that's a notable number, actually. Those are those are metric dollars, Kelly Wand. Uh, uh, so mathomity for tonight. Well, actually, there are other uh, data points we could bring into this. The uh, Sylvester Stallone dread, way back when uh, that movie's got to be fifteen years old, uh, made twice as much money when it opened, uh, which again was no great shakes. But it had like a $12 million opening. I, the problem here, obviously, is that nobody knows who Judge Dredd is. Nobody knows anyone famous in the movie. You know, there's nothing that, that is selling this movie. So when you have a bunch of people just saying, oh, do I go to End of Watch or The House on the Left or Dredd? You know, they're going to go for the easy horror movie or the cop drama or, wh- or whatever. Like, with, with no real selling point, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. And I, I'm not the least bit surprised. Uh, but the ad I saw for it said mm-hmm. Urban Thurlby Travis. I don't know who that is. And then it said Dread. Like they had so many stars in it, like it was uh, an embarrassment of riches. Travis. <laughs> who is Travis? Stars. He's the director. <laughs> oh. That's that's awesome that they have enough confidence in P. Travis. It's awesome. The second name. What's his last name? Uh, it's awesome that they have enough confidence in their actors and their director to, to push their last names like that, but I think I rest my case. That's <laughs> not going to get people out there. The director was the third draw. Dingus, what else has Pete Travis done? For some reason, I feel like I should know this. He did uh, um, a movie called Vantage Point. Oh, right, right. Yeah, actually, that kind of made me psyched to see Dread. Vantage Point has some really good action in it. Um it, it, it has some really good action in it, but it really falls apart. Um, but it does have some good action in it, that's true. And he also did, oh gosh, oh, something I never saw before, never mind. All right. Uh, hey, when action falls apart. Kelly Wand, it's, uh, it's over to you now. Why don't you uh, uh, reconstruct for us the action and inv- events of Dread 3D? Maybe, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you call this? Short, to the point, I like it. Less is more, Tom. Rock and roll, Kelly Wand. Finally, a science fiction action movie that focuses on the highest octane phase of post-apocalyptic law enforcement. The sentencing. The time, the future again. (laughs) The place. Something fucking dystopia capital one city, Opolisville. The man, Judge Dredd. They never say his first name, but I pretended it was Ted. (laughs) 
It's becoming challenging to keep all my movie dystopias straight since Total Reboot, but from the establishing shots of unlabeled skyscrapers and a guy saying stuff, we learned that 99% of the world's acreage is too expensive looking to set the movie in, so everybody lives in this single cramped city where the crime's so bad the judges have to ride motorcycles. There's a new drug on the street called CG. All the people who make it, use it, and shoot guns over it conveniently live in the same high-rise, but they're considered impossible to find or bust. I guess, since Judge Dredd hasn't tried yet. The leader of the drug empire is Cersei, who has a scar face but goes by the moniker Mama because she used to be a whore. Sidebar, Dan Aykroyd's foe in 1983's Dr. Detroit was also a drug manufacturer known as Mom. For making that movie, Aykroyd got to fuck Donna Dixon for life. Because <laughs> those mannerisms made her hot. And the three or four people who paid a ticket to see Dr. Detroit Theaters subsidized it. <laughs> Easy Rooms, 83, and Donna. Anyway, still psychic-free, for a few more minutes, Judge Dredd doesn't know the whole movie takes place in a garage yet. He has to bust perps the old-fashioned way by shooting them in a van on the freeway and causing a 50-car pileup. One dude escapes on the skates and limps to a hostage store. <laughs> Judge Dredd... <laughs> Uh, oh yeah. Judge Dredd tracks him down by walking slowly and tries to talk some sense into him. Approach the bench. The dude's all, You call that a negotiation, Judge? I call for a mistrial essay and a plane to whatever Cuba's called now. What? I'm doing some acting, Dingus. Please. It's method. Judge Dredd's all, Beaver shot after the double take. The guy's all, huh? What the? Splort. Judge Dredd motorcycles back to the police station and enters a room with one-way glass in it where his boss is standing. She's all, great work closing that beaver case, Dredd. Boys down at the ASPCA sent us a couple donuts. You want the rest of this jelly one? Notarization. Remanded. Uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh... <laughs> Dealing with our global radiation problem by having cops also serve as judges, bailiffs, wardens, prosecuting attorneys, defendants, quality assurance, and mall security has been really awesome paperwork-wise, but we're still not meeting our quotas. So in an effort to speed justice up even more, we've decided to pair you with a teenage psychic. Speaking of which, psychic powers exist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Judge Dredzall, objection. The boss is all, that's enough sass out of you, Dredd. The city doesn't pay you to judge things. Now check this shit. She hits an exposition button on the wall. Uh, Cadet Blonde Thurlby, please read the mind of the man scowling beside me so he'll want to be stuck in a squad car with you ten hours a day. Olivia Thurlby shuts her eyes, gestures like she's swimming underwater, and goes, he's a male, age irrelevant. He has no personality traits whatsoever, even for comic book character. Yet... Beneath his stern patrician exterior beats the soul of a poet, a poet with a cock, a cock that he plays drums with, that he one day hopes to marry. Okay, Thurlby, that'll do. Well, Judge Dredd, how about that shit? Looks like you two have quite a bonding arc ahead. <laughs> Judge Dredd's all, I'll be in my chambers. Meanwhile, <laughs> Mama tosses some flayed bodies onto her porch instead of in the trash. So Judge Dredd and Olivia Thurlby get called in by medical examiners, which they don't serve as. 
They get to the mall, and Olivia Thirlby puts her hand over a piece of eyeball and goes, They're dead. They felt terrible pain before that. Judge Dredd's writing a ticket. Littering. Sentence. Death. <laughs> he sticks a ticket in the corpse's hand, pulls his gun out, walks ten feet away to a piece of the guy's head, shoots it, then comes back. All rise. Thirlby's all, no, wait. She raises a three of spades to her head, shuts her eyes, and wanders around, grasping an invisible butterflies. I see the next scene in the movie, us shooting bullets, synthesizer music. I see myself shutting my eyes, having a psychic vision again. Waiter? No, later. <laughs> she misread the word later. Out of brain. But Judge dreads too busy handcuffing things. They go into a room and shoot a bunch of dudes through the cheeks. Then find out the one survivor they randomly didn't shoot is Mama's second banana. Thurlby's all, wow, the stuff in his head could really implicate Mama. Too bad we don't have any way of reading his mind right here and now. Even though we're judges, guess we got to keep him alive till we get him to City Hall. Since Mama fears legal hassle, she has her IT guy call a phone number that seals her high-rise and garage doors, which I guess the medical examiner guys outside don't notice. Mom and her gang of thousands then proceed to consistently miss hitting Judge Dredd and Olivia Thirlby with bullets for the next hour and 22 minutes. They just can't hit them, despite Olivia Thirlby's refusal to wear a helmet because it would block her psychic abilities and Judge Dredd's tactic of stomping around alone without taking cover. After, quote, cornering them in a dark corridor, Mama shoots bullets at it with chain guns and wipes out every atom for a hundred yards, but misses hitting Judge Dredd and Thurlby because they found a Pan's Labyrinth portal to a Lost Boy's half-pipe. From there... <laughs> From there, they call in reinforcements that never come. Then Judge Dredd tells Thurlby they have to go back inside because we would have nowhere to run to out here. Luckily for Judge Dredd, Mama's right-hand man doesn't know that Judge is Jun Judds, just his guns. <laughs> oh, I hate it. my life. Doesn't know that Judge's guns are key to their billing and becomes a left-hand man. The turncoat female Judge doesn't know that her own department uses psychics. Ultimately, Mama and Judge Dredd face off in an ancient archetypal clash: evil versus Dredd. Though briefly tricked by her flashing wristband, he countertricks by shooting her in the cooch and throwing her over the balcony. Thurlby staggers in, eyes wide shut, hands groping. I sense Kelly Wand will watch the whackness the second he gets home. Erection sustained. Yeah. <laughs> I lost interest, sorry. Uh, did you watch the whackness? Yeah. All right, how was that? Uh, totally lived up. It has the the lesser talented Olsen, one of the lesser talented Olsen sisters. What do you think I of that? Watch that part. Oh, I see. You just fast forwarded to the bits with Joust. that Josh Josh Drake fellow, whatever his name is. There's a guy in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, Dingus, you mentioned other drug use in this movie, other than the fictional slow mo. What was the other drug use? It, aren't the perps in the van using just some narcotic? Yeah, slow mo. Yeah. Are they using slow-mo? All right. Never yeah. mind. That's why it's in slow-mo that, during that part. For 10 minutes. <laughs> oh. It wasn't just Still a stylistic under. choice. Yeah. Uh, all right, so 77% of professional critics who saw this gave it a thumbs up and liked it. Kelly Wan, would you be in that 77%? Or are Wait, you was part that of the math again? Well, I'm just wondering, are you part of the 77 or the 23%? I just need to know well, what, what part of America you are, Kelly Wand. 
I think the big issue with chicks who go blonde is that their hair gets kind of sticky from chemicals, and so when you run your hands through it, it's kind of gross, but still hot. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of the 77. All right, Dingus, are you with Kelly Wan's pro-Olivia Thurlby agenda that gets him on board with Judge Dredd? Or Dredd? Oh, oh hells yes. See? We're part of the 77, Tom. Wow, yeah. I'm, That's the I'm a bit of a 23 percenter. All right. So uh, what made this work for you guys then? Coming off Resident Evil made me and be able to actually follow what's going on in a dumbass action movie. Okay. Plus, I mean, it's not all blonde. Like, her br- her roots are brunette, too. Certainly her eyebrows. And the rest of her face is in the movie also. <laughs> uh, Dingus, what was this a matter of comparison for you? Like, after we saw uh, Resident Evil, you were just more open to a, a slightly more competent, dumb action movie? Uh, not really. Have, when's the last time you guys saw the 1995 Judge Dredd? I don't think I've ever seen that, actually. 96 on video. Well, I watched it this week. <laughs> I remember thinking, it, Diane Lane's in it, right? Oh, yeah. No, wait. But, I, you know what? I, so It's not the one with Sandra Bullock? That's no, Demolition Man. Judge Dredd doesn't have all the Taco Bell and Wesley Snipes stuff, and that is Demolition. Wait, you watched Dredd, this movie, thinking of that movie? Thinking of Demolition Man? I knew it was a Sylvester Stallone (laughs) sci-fi action movie, but I guess I didn't realize... They are kind of... They came out, like, back-to-back, and that's my only point. Well, my my point of reference for Judge Dredd, I don't know the comic book, but I think there's been a... Has there been a video game? I think there have been a couple of, like, ill-fated video games. Um, so, Dingus, you went back, you watched the Sylvester Stallone one, and, and how did that turn out for you? Oh, it's horrible. Uh, you know, um, Max von Sydow is in it, Jurgen Prochnow, Armand Asante, and they're all horrible. Rob Schneider's in it, right? And it starts with this uh, with this long thing, and you brought it up, Kelly. You brought Rob Schneider up because he and he's in like, He like ate spaghetti in your favorite food moment or something. Um, he's horrible. It's just terrible. Um, and it's but uh, th- that's unfair. I, it's not just that that this movie does well compared with my expectations based on that movie. I just really, really liked this movie. And I thought the 3d was freaking great. I, I mean, I, I just, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting to wind up in a, I don't know what you would call it. Like assault on precinct 13 kind of yeah. we're, we're, we're locked in kind of a it's thing. A I was movie. not expecting a siege movie. Yeah. And I love the way it, I love I just love the way it played out. I was really crazy about this movie. I agree with uh, Dingus. More recently, you can see that, by the way, in The Raid Redemption. They do the same kind of thing there. Uh, you know, there's not much, uh, as far as style, there's not a lot of cross-pollination. But that whole concept, that kind of die-hardy concept of let's lock something in one location. And The Raid Redemption plays a lot with, there's a drug lord in there announcing over the speakers, hey, kill the cops, you know, and there's all the, the clans in the building, uh, so I, I did definitely appreciate that they they focused. It didn't feel like they needed to do some crazy origin story or they needed to do anything spanning the city. Like I liked that focus on one character, one incident, one building, basically one day. It's a training, uh, day. It's a training day. And that's where I kind of was a little disappointed in it. Uh, the you know I. Part of my problem is I felt like the movie was not that interested in some of its core concepts. 
Uh, one of the core concepts being the basis of Judge Dredd, you know, what if cops just pass judgment right there? Like, I don't know if that's supposed to be uh, some sort of social commentary on fascism. I don't know what's going on there, but the movie did not seem that interested in exploring that. That's fine. It kind of took it for granted. Uh, also, the um, the whole idea of the two of them, I, I wish it had spent more time letting them interact uh, and, and how they got along and didn't get along. Like I, I kind of loved this idea of him letting her make the calls, uh, and I wanted yeah. to see more of that and more of their relationship, and I feel that's where the movie ultimately fell down for me. And one of the reasons that I'm particularly disappointed and that I was expecting more here is Alex Garland recently wrote a video game uh, called Enslaved Odyssey to the West or something like that. It's just known as Enslaved, and it's the same basic concept as this, namely... A really tough, powerful dude in the video game played by Andy Serkis uh, teams up with a more frail um, woman with special powers. And the voice actress in the video game was named Lindsay Shaw. And Andy Serkis and Lindsay Shaw were great together. Alex Garland did some really good character stuff with the two of them. And because it was a video game, there's only so much like shooting and jumping you can do. There's a lot of time, like downtime, for the characters to talk to each other. So Enslaved has this great sort of male-female relationship going that I was kind of expecting from Judge Dredd, from Dread 3D based on Alex Garland having done the script. And that's what ultimately I, I felt like I didn't get enough of and where I was a bit disappointed. Well, I think, I think part of the problem is that he's really confining himself because he, he started – I mean, he's been working on this since he, he finished Sunshine. And um, and he started with this this weird storyline about uh, I, I don't know I don't have any idea about the Judge Dredd universe I've never read any of the graphic novels or whatever they are but he started and I didn't know this uh, I was a little weirded out by the mutant thing that crops up at the beginning of this movie because I thought we were sort of supposed to be in the real world just in the future of the real world mm-hmm. but uh, but apparently in this universe there's also this whole undead group of judges that, that exist. What? And he was, and from he the was, future, other dimensions too. Yeah, and he was going to do a movie about Judge Death or something like that. This undead judge who leads a bunch of undead judges, <laughs> and then he was going to do these other big epic storylines. And because of their budget, he just decided, I'm just going to do a day in the life kind of a thing. Uh, and and the the arc of Dredd's character is not an arc. He he doesn't really change that much. He moves from. He's not going to do. He says he's not going to do something in an early scene, and then he contradicts that in a later scene. That's that's as much as he moves, and he's going to give all of the character arc to the Anderson character. He's going to let her do whatever she does, and Judge Dredd is not supposed to change. So those were the confines he gave himself, or at least that's the justification he gives himself. If he, if he's backfilling, I don't know, but uh, even without those parameters, Carl Urban totally worked for me i just loved what he was doing and i guess maybe part of that is that stallone is so horrible that urban just works i don't know but i i just love the way it looked i love the production design of it and i and i would disagree with you tom because i think there were plenty of those letting her decide moments in this movie there were certainly a couple. I just wanted more of that. I wanted more of that relationship, and it seemed like a few times they would just do that as a throwaway bit, but then he sort of took over and drove the action for the, the rest of the movie. Uh, right. It sort of... Uh, and um, I, 
I mean, you say that Carl Urban or Bon, I'm assuming it's Urban, I don't know how you say his name, but you say he did well, but I, I, I can't make any, I, I cannot take a man seriously wearing that hat. And well, that's that's a me thing, and I, you know, off, he, yes? I was going to say, A, his chin is a better actor than everyone's combined anatomies in Resident Evil. <laughs> Fair point. And also, apparently in the comics, you never see him with his helmet off. Like and that's, that's, that's exactly what I was guessing, is that it was fan service. You know, and Carl Urban is a good actor. He's a good-looking fella. He can sell convincing emotion. I wanted to see him looking at her, and I wanted to see in his eyes how he felt about her. And nope, he's going to wear that stupid hat the whole time, because that's the way it is in the comic book. And that drove me crazy. I, and I knew from the, from the very beginning scene that was probably what they were going to do, because we see him suit up, and he puts on the helmet. Moment, we never see his face like i i didn't know i was kind of holding out hope there might be a reveal near the end where hey look it's his face but no nope. i thought that at the beginning but then by the end i i agree with dingus like he'd grown on me and i just think he's that he's that good an actor like his body language somehow conveyed more than it should have and 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 as i was watching it all i was thinking of tom's gonna have his magnetic yeah. problem with this <laughs> it's a terrible hat it's an awful hat. And by the way, he fumbles the very first freaking line. You know, all these Australians like Paul Walker and Christian Bale and whatnot coming over and playing Americans. Carl Urban is an Australian. He's from the Australian province of New Zealand. He comes <laughs> over here, and in the very first line, he says, America. Oh, I loved that. I love when he said America. <laughs> it's the future, though. So it's okay. Oh, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> Do another take where he says America like an American. <laughs> well, I, th- I think uh, in America his name is Urban, but but I listened to a couple interviews, and one of the things I heard was this Qantas movie and TV uh, awards show, and they pronounced it Urban, and since that's from New Zealand, I decided to pronounce it Urban. That's very, yeah, pronounce it as, as it would be in his native tongue, Dingus. That's very respectful of you. I support that. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, I was I was fine with uh, with just seeing what what he did with what he had, and that he was just from what I understand, he was dead set on keeping that helmet on the whole time. He was not going. He said that's what the character is. And while I felt like um, Bane was a total waste of Tom Hardy's talents, I didn't feel that way about. Uh, about Dread. I just thought that he did a fine job, and part of that is because Olivia Thurlby and the the choice and the justification for the choice of her to leave her helmet off um, was was a Funny. really good counterpoint to that. And it that, that helps, you know. We got to see Olivia Thurlby's face. You should see an actor's face. Ugh, I just, you know what? Make a new helmet for him. Do yeah. it up different. You know what? If Bane doesn't have to wear a Luchadero or no, what do you call it? Luchador mask? Then why does Judge Dredd have to wear that silly thing with the X over yeah, his forehead? He's taking a challenge. Carl Urban's going, "Fuck you, Tom Chick. I'm going to win this challenge." <laughs> well, and and, your own podcasters against you with sheer talent. And how, but I love it. How, how like, well did that pay off at the box office, Kelly Wand? That does, oh really? really? <laughs> want, Sorry. Is that how it's going to be? No. <laughs> but I, I love it. Just precedent check. I love what he Ooh. does with his voice. What little he can do with his voice. And here's two. One syllable moments. They're they're on the elevator headed down after they get K, the uh, the guy they take uh, the, the prisoner, and and she says uh, something like um, he's thinking about making a move for your gun, mm-hmm. and um, and Dread says yeah, and then she said he just changed his mind and he goes yep. <laughs> I just love the way he does those two syllables. It's just great. Those definitely, there were a couple of nice, that, that by the way, Dingus right there was probably, I, I thought, my, my favorite moment of the movie because 
it's like I said before, the movie didn't seem too interested in concepts of cops as as uh, judges and juries. It didn't seem too interested in uh, even the drug thing. Like it, it didn't. It played a little bit. Like I loved the stylistic presentation of that choice of that drug stuff and the, and the way it slows down time. But it didn't play with it nearly as much as I was hoping it would. Uh, one of the things that it did seem occasionally interested in is the psychic power stuff, and I kind of liked that. But you know, the fact that the best part of it was that, that elevator scene, I was a little disappointed in. I, I thought there would be some showdown between uh, Olivia Thirlby and Lena Headey. Like that, that I thought there was going to be some kind of psychic payoff there. And instead, by the way, I hated that scene. You know, we talked about in Expendables 2 how uh, Stallone does this really sadistic thing at the end, and it just felt weird and out of place. I thought that Carl Urban, like, dreads, like, her his execution of her was just this pointlessly dickish move. Like, I didn't like that. What are you uh, talking about? No, no, it was, it was, it was tactical. incredibly important for the end of the movie. Why didn't yeah. he just shoot her? Like, why didn't no, he just... Because her then, her, then her heart stops and the entire right. place blows up. Oh, okay, well then, that's right. sorry, sorry. Why didn't he just drag her out of there? Uh, then she... That's not as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is, well, he didn't have to do what he did. Uh, you're right. I remember he can't just shoot her there. But what's to stop him? He's a big hulking guy from just carrying her out. Because he's a judge and her sentence is death and he has to carry out yeah. the sentence. Right? Why then. can't he carry out the sentence in the lobby? Why can't he oh, take out what they do? They, they don't do that. He, I mean, that, that's been set up based on what he's been teaching the rookie all along. Don't tell me. Tell Control. Carry out the sentence right now on that guy by Kathy's husband. Control is not going to tell him, yeah, go ahead and kill her now. Blow up the top 50 stories of the building. He no, can no. take her downstairs and he could do the, the actual procedure. Like, it's the procedure. And why did he have to give her the drug? That was dickish why didn't he just throw because no, then her heart will just won't go slowly and then well, the wonderful thing about the drug i love that drug so well, much wait, hold, i want to get back to the drug but come on i want you guys to at least concede that he was a total dick to lena hetty at the end now first off she's evil so this is like the mouth of sauron getting whacked by aragorn Argument. He shouldn't have risen above it. Like, shouldn't he be the the voice of law, even if it's sort of uh, ruthless? He's Judge Dredd. He, he should be. He should be a lawful neutral. That should be his alignment. And instead, he did something that was chaotic evil. No, he didn't. He didn't have any other play. He had to slow her heart down so that she wouldn't die till she hit the bottom. Wait, wait so. what do you mean? Why did he have to slow her heart down? Because if so her she heart didn't die until she got a kilometer, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right. hold on, hold on. She dies so before she hits the bottom. How is she going to die? How is she going to die before she hits the bottom? Because her wound from the gunshot. He knows exactly how long it's going to take. Okay, you guys are not First giving. Off, you're not budging on this. Fair enough, but I know that I'm on the moral high ground on this one. I think so you were I just want to say. That. I just want to say to you guys regarding this whole issue, defense noted. And now we can move on. Okay, so Dingus, you wanted to say something. This all started by you you saying, why didn't he just shoot her? So uh, I would like to treat you as a hostile witness right now. No one says defense noted, by the way. Overruled. It does. The judge said defense noted. That, that's what Judge Dredd, that's what Carl Urban said. He yeah, says, how do you plead? And she just sort of blisses out, and he says defense noted, and throws her over the edge like a dick. He's a total jerk to her. He didn't have to be a jerk. The law was on his side. You know, the the moral thing to do is on jerk. his side, and he's just going to be a jerk. Wait, her, what her, sentence, her sentence is execution, and what right. they do is execute the sentence right then. Stop right. it. 
Just why didn't remember. This from you didn't remember the thing on her wrist. Just admit that and let's move on. It doesn't matter. He can take her down the elevator and execute. Why does he need it? to? He yeah, that power. right there as he always does. You just because he's it. just going to be uh, he's going to be as mean to her as she was to the guys she threw over. It's a payback. It's a stupid revenge thing, and it's out of character. He's not about revenge. He's about due process. Even if due process is brutal, there are ways around that. He doesn't have to do this like cruel and unusual punishment thing to her where he drugs her and then draws out her final moments as she's dying. They do that because the movie wanted to be like like brutal and R-rated and tough. And I just thought it was out of character. He could have done no, that. I, thought, I really thought that he was using point is true, drug. actually. The, so. the movie does that a lot. So you're right about that. Okay, so defense noted. I also just wanted to get that in again. And I would like to say what he says at the end of that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Dingus, let's talk about the drug because apparently you take this drug and it turns the world into a perfume commercial. How did you feel about that? I love it. I think it's such a great excuse to make beautiful 3D. Oh, you're making me wish I saw it in 3D, dadgummit. Oh, it, oh, man, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous in 3D because of that slow-mo. The slow-mo is just an excuse uh, to make all of those little... When, she's, when, um, when Mama's in the tub, I mean, that's when you really first see it. Yeah. She's in the tub at the beginning, and she flicks her hand up. I mean, that is beautiful and so the movie kind of wavers between beautiful and disgustingly beautiful so that that scene where in the drug bust when they're when the guys are getting shot through the face uh all that stuff is just gorgeous and it's because of slow-mo right and that's just an excuse for 3d which they they shot it was shot in 3d using those 3d max red cameras whatever it is um and that's totally on purpose and i i really love that they chose a goofy drug that would highlight the fact that they're shooting in 3D. I mean, it was, it was a great uh, it was a great trick to play with, and um, and yeah, it, it looked fantastic. And I loved. I will say there was a lot of energy in the cinematography in this movie that I really appreciated. Uh, even if I didn't feel there's a lot of energy in the action scenes, certainly in the visuals, uh, Pete Travis definitely did a, a good job uh, in that regard. Um, and yeah, and a lot of it was due to that drug stuff. Uh, Kelly, that, one, have you ever done slow mo? No, but if the drug had been expositional, I would have did. <laughs> it doesn't expose too much, because um, that's another thing I liked about it. Is I thought it got underway pretty quickly. Uh, it wasn't too turgid early on. No, Wait, and, it, so and at least like it, Tom. Uh, I can I can pay compliments about movies even if I to movies even if I don't like you sound them. Sound like you're grudgingly falling in love with it. No, I'm not because that's ultimately the the core of the movie is the relationship between Dredd and Anderson, and that just there wasn't enough there for me. Uh, even it's though just it was their shot first well. Day. And the whole <laughs> trilogy is complete, and the, maybe the, the sequel, third day. Yeah. Right, maybe the sequel will bring me around. Uh, how do you guys feel about guns that have voice activated ammunition? Uh, loadouts with visual displays on the side. He doesn't know it's called Hot Shot. Until... Oh, that was the name of the ammo? No, yeah. no, that wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He calls the oh. ammo. I mean, that's one of the things that the then he tells you are coded to their DNA, and the bullets are too. I mean, that's what's really. Uh, I really liked those readouts. That that moment where. It shows low ammo and stuff like that. It felt very video gamey to me, and that was fine. I would be so annoyed if I had to say the name of the ammo I was going to shoot before I shot. Yeah, what if you get shot in the throat? Yeah, because someone does. A, a guy gets punched in the throat, and they do that that uh, that 
they do this weird CG effect to show his throat being crushed. I will say I appreciate it after having to sit through Resident Evil Retribution. It was nice to see some suitably gory R-rated uh, action. You know, Dingus mentioned the scenes with the bullets tearing through faces and stuff, and uh, that's, yep, that was R-rated. And also, by the way, to hear people using appropriate profanity when they're shooting and getting shot at. <laughs> I appreciated that as well. Uh, it's, it's nice to see an R-rated movie that feels R-rated. How do you guys feel about, um, this felt very obvious to me, and, and part of this is because I remember us talking about Resident Evil Afterlife. And uh, so I'm wondering if you guys noticed this and how you felt about it. How you felt about Mama just basically taking rape off the table. When she says that they can't do the terrible things to Olivia Thoroughly that they want to do because they're going to set up the the murders to look like it was just... uh, I don't know, yeah, uh, how I feel. Like, I feel, I felt happy for the character, I guess, <laughs> that she wasn't going to happen. It seems pointless. It was a red herring, since none of it mattered. Well, so here's the, that, like, yeah, like, I feel it didn't matter. And I, I also, they, they did some odd things, and it colors how I then didn't like Dread doing that dickish stuff to her at the end. They did some odd things to make her seem sympathetic. Uh, including that, you know, wanting to protect Olivia Thurlby, whether it was because of maybe something that had happened to her or because she was legitimately concerned about uh, how this would appear to the other judges that came around or if the movie just wanted to shy away from the topic. For whatever reason, like there were some sympathetic things about her and her backstory, too, that she was a prostitute who'd been wounded. Uh, you know, I recently rewatched Unforgiven uh, and. There's, you know, I, I liked her character. I liked who she was. I, I wanted to know more about her. I, it's kind of endearing also. Dingus, you mentioned we, we meet her in the bathtub. It's this oddly endearing scene to see her blissed out in the tub just watching the water splashes. You know, there was something kind of childish about that. Uh, so I, I liked her character. Uh, and and that played into it. You know, she didn't. She was just going to have uh, Olivia Thurlby mercifully killed and not do dickish things like Dredd did to her. Wait, but uh, what's his name? Kay said, oh, yeah, we got this chick once, and it was terrible. So that happened on her watch, too. So yeah, but that's a good point. But maybe he was lying. Really? Dickus, why, br- why do you bring that up? <laughs> uh, I was just keyed into it because after we did the... Um, the- a retribution podcast. I was remembering at the afterlife podcast. Now, a lot of that movie takes place in a prison as the zombies are outside of it. There's the Citadel in LA. And one of the things that was key about that is that there's really no sexuality in Resident Evil Afterlife. And there's no threat of rape. And right. and I was just remembering our discussion and how rape is often held over a female character in this type of movie and thus over the audience as sort of a sort of Damocles or a weapon or something. And you you get that sense early on when, in that scene that Kelly Wan just referenced with Kay and Anderson where he's letting her see these ideas he has in his head. And then we get upstairs and he's like, you are so fucked. And then they get in there and the, the writer, the director, whoever just says, yeah, that's off the table, don't worry about it anymore. And it felt kind of obvious to me. It felt kind of like an obvious... Like, we're just taking this off the table to worry about it. And and maybe that's just my baggage because of those other two things. And I was just wondering if it was something that occurred to you guys or if it's just me. They do play with it, but sort of shy away from it. Like, yeah. in the scene where she's inside his head. Right. Uh, and he, like, you know, they're very clearly implication of what's going on there. And 
they then don't show us really they cop how out, basically they cop out with that and with how she trumps him. I, I yes. mean, there the there were I guess we're just supposed to assume that all sorts of awful, unimaginable things take place there, and there you go. That's it. Um, but he's playing with a knife to yeah. do something to her, and then the gun thing goes down. So it seems like. They both get Deus Ex Machina. Like she Deus Ex Machina is herself, and then she <laughs> saves Dread. It's kind of like wait. <laughs> it's kind of like time travel when you have like mind reading in a movie. Uh, you know when you're yeah, in someone's imagination. Right, and then at one point, and she gets caught because she's not mind reading the guy that she's supposed. To, like that guy gets loose that second. She wouldn't have planned that. Yeah. Uh, I did love that they gave Lena Headey awful teeth. Uh, you know, yeah. the scar's one thing, but so often you just see the scar and the absolutely beautiful woman. But they gave her these really gross teeth, uh, which I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, she Jeez looked like people. she looked like a meth addict. Uh, right. <laughs> Bad. Therefore, she's, she's deserving of... She's either evil or British, Kelly Wand. Uh, what did you guys... So, uh, I, I, did you, I, I presume you both noticed the Matt Berry connection. Huh? <laughs> Tilda Swinton's character is listening to the theme from uh, from Snuffbox. Uh, you mean Snuff- the son from Holy Grail? I liked my Tilda Swinton reference better. All right, <laughs> so there's a really obscure British uh, series that we know called Snuffbox with an actor named Matt Berry, who is on Dark Place, and Rich Fulcher. Uh, and for whatever reason, it was the most random damn thing. Uh, there's a couple of times where that hacker dude is listening to the theme from Snuffbox. I was so tickled to hear that. But but what's going on there? I guess they just wanted to put in an Easter egg for Snuffbox fans. Or fanboys. I'm one of those. I you can you can call me either one of those. Uh, he was listening to that song both times, so he just listened to the song, not even watching the show. Right, exactly. He's just listening to the, to the theme to Snuffbox, like the soundtrack. The way Reese Witherspoon watches Butch Cassidy and this means more. One, two, three, uh, not only you really? and me, got one eighty-three, and I'm going to It's kind of fun to make Tom talk about movies you know he doesn't give a shit about. <laughs> you realize you don't care either, and no one's winning. He's just going to wear that hat the whole time. I don't care. Who? Oh. Carl Urban. You know, Carl Urban has had to contend with bad hats. <laughs> Let's do a three by three. What do you guys think of that? Christian Bale's not strange. What's that, Kelly Wand? Nothing. <laughs> uh, Kelly Wand, what is this week's three by three? I didn't pick it. You can still introduce it if you want. Uh, what? That's what we're doing? All right, I'll try. How would you introduce this week's 3x3, three three, Kelly? This Wong? is uh, Tom's usual uh, nod to math in that um, there will be involves, math. There will be math, uh, sums of money that Tom thinks we think were memorable. Now, taken off the table, we're trading places where a dollar is bet between Don Amici and uh, whoever the other dude is. Uh, Jaws. Where Quint will find it for three thousand, but for ten he'll catch it and he'll kill it. 
Uh, and what else did I take out? Oh, and of course, in Austin Powers, there's the joke about Dr. Evil wanting $1 million. Uh, so those are examples where the sum of money is very specific to something in the movie. It was memorable. I certainly remembered those. Uh, and I, I, I really hated taking those off the table because I had a hard time coming up with other ones. Uh, uh, so what I want from you guys, and we also have some submissions from readers, are examples of notable sums of money in movies. So, Kelly Wan, since you are introducing next week's 3 by 3 what is your number three pick for a notable sum of money in a movie? My number three money sum of note is from the movie Drag Me to Hell, in which it was revealed that if you pay $10,000, you still won't get demon banished. Oh, is that the amount that she pays the uh, the demon yep. banisher? Though There's a woman who's in the intro, right? And she hires her to get rid of the curse. And she gives her 10000 bucks. Yeah. Just as long as to raise for her. Because uh, that's what it costs to hire Quint to, crack, to catch the great white shark. That's my point. I see. <laughs> it's like they can find the demon for three, but they can catch it but and kill it. But for ten, I'll for catch ten. it and I'll kill it. But then Ed, she doesn't get old, old damn thing. Yeah. They don't. She doesn't get rid of the demon, and then she has to try more shit after that, and still fucking fails. But she still doesn't get her money back. Doesn't it all too come down to a lucky coin mistaken for a button, or vice versa? Like, isn't there? Isn't that a uh, a reveal at the end of the movie? Yeah. Or no, it's not. Or it is. Well, then you get, so the cost of the code that she gets the button from would be the actual amount. <laughs> but that number is not given. So ten thousand dollars to get suck. rid ten thousand to get rid of a gypsy curse, and it doesn't even work. You don't. Need, can you get your money back for that, Kelly Wand? All mine are thousands. Okay, good. And uh, are they all non-refundable? Uh, like drag me to hell because she can't. No. She couldn't get her ten thousand back, if I recall correctly, from the woman that she paid because that woman came to a bad end, right? Well, was it? What do you get for ten thousand? Like, is it? Are you paying for the goat and the mansion for the night? Oh, right. Or do they add that on extra? Like, does that stuff appear at the bill later as an additional charge? Yeah, right. I don't know. All right. All right, what so do they can, need money for? Like, if they're psychic, but they need $10,000... Tell you on the mortgage on that mansion cannot be cheap. Dingus, what is your number three pick for a notable sum of money in a, in a movie? Uh, well, here's a quote from it. Okay. Harold, please, not again the TV. Harold, please, not... Oh, yeah. You know what? I don't remember how much they got for the TV, though. Okay, the notable sum... This is Requiem for a Dream... Uh, the notable sum is $20. And uh, so Harold takes his mom's TV and drags it all the way down the pier to... Oh, crap. Mark Margolis. Mark Margolis. Mar- uh, yeah, Mr. Rabinowitz. That's the name of the character, Mark Margolis. Oh. Um, to the pawn guy and pawns it for 20 bucks, And uh, then mom has to come down... Uh, several hours later, and this is just for drug money to get her TV back. And usually, she has to pay between twenty-five and thirty dollars. And you can tell this because there's this great shot of the ledger that Rabinowitz has uh, that that says, I think Sarah's uh, what's 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 the what's the last name? Sarah Goldfarb. Sarah Goldfarb's um, Sarah Goldfarb's TV. He has a separate ledger for her. <laughs> They've been doing for this for like twenty dollars, twenty dollars for twenty years or thirty years or however long uh, Harold has been doing this, 
and and the he flips open open the ledger and you see a ledger there of the times that he's had to pay Harold twenty dollars and she's come in and paid sometimes in installments. You just get that sense just from this one shot of the ledger, and just uh, I know you were probably going for larger sums, but for me, no, not at all, Dingus. Not at all. It was a dollar in trading places, so oh, you're, good, good you're already not at the smallest sum. Yeah. So so for me, it's just notable that 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 their relationship. And that whole that opening scene—it's not the opening scene, but the next scene after the juice scene—is is her locking herself behind a door and him stealing the TV once again in this thing that they do over and over again, rather than just having her give him twenty dollars. And however that happens, uh, I just uh, that the idea that he did he does this with his friend, drags the TV all the way down there to get twenty bucks to get high, and then she has to go buy her TV back. So twenty bucks. Right, very good. I like that one. Uh, all right, Kelly Wand, let me ask you a question. What is the funniest number in the English language? <laughs> Twelve, probably. Whoa, way wrong. I, I'm disappointed. I, I thought you'd pick something else. You should choose it for your jersey number, Tom. <laughs> uh, so you guys know the scene from uh, No Country for Old Men. There's actually a few sums of money in No Country for Old Men, uh, including... Um, where uh, uh, Llewellyn uh, has been uh, shot, and he's trying to cross the border to Mexico, and he pays $500 for a jacket and a beer <laughs> to get across the border. Uh, and then at the end, uh, uh, Javier Bardem, uh, Chigur, pays, he doesn't say the sum, but you see the $100 bill, pays to, oh, rats, what the guy, what's the guy's name, Dingus from Last Exorcism and Contraband, who played the brother, Caleb? Oh, help me out here, Dingus. What's his name? Oh, damn. Now that you said his name, I can't think of it. Caleb. Uh, can I say oh, Caleb Banshee? Oh, it's something like that. Rats. But he's one of the little kids <laughs> that Shiger gives $100 to for a shirt at the very end of the movie. So whereas Llewellyn has to pay $500 for a beer and a jacket, Shiger gets a shirt for $100 at the end of the movie. But the one that I was remembering is I wanted to go back and watch that quarter scene to see how much he was supposed to pay the gas station attendant. Yeah, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to see that, too. Uh, and do you remember how much it was, Dingus? I have no idea, no. So it was 69 cents. Oh. <laughs> he is charged 69 uh. cents, and not for the gas. He then says in how much, before they can get around to charging him for the gas, Sugar does the freak out, does the weird thing with flipping the coin. Uh, so he doesn't even pay the 69 cents for what he's eating, and I don't even know what those are. I'm inclined to think they're like the size of sunflower seeds, but he's not spitting the shell out. You can't tell from the wrapper what it is. Um, like corn nuts or something. I think they're too small for that, too. I couldn't quite tell, but corn nuts does seem right. Uh, Maybe pepitas? Yeah, I thought somebody would choose something like the, the big sum of money, but I love this choice. And and the thing is, he yeah, he doesn't pay it. He doesn't pay for the gas. Like, he, he gets out of it. So it's almost like the quarter flipping thing is an elaborate enough ruse to get free gas and corn nuts or, or, or whatever those things are. But I just remember the, guy's, the guy charges him 69 cents. Also, I don't know if you guys know this. Do you know what year that movie is set in? 57? Nope. Well, for, we do know, I think, that Llewellyn was a, a Vietnam veteran. Um, ah, it's a 69. No, no, no. Uh, well, in that scene, the year is made explicit because Chigurh says this quarter, the date on this quarter is 1968. It's taken 22 years to come here. Like he says that to the attendant. You know, they, they, they firmly anchor the movie in 1990 at, at that point. Um, Wait, 80, I thought. 
Hold on, uh, 68, 70. No, it would be 1990, because he says it's taken 22 years. I remember he said that number, and he does say the quarter is 1968. Maybe he's bad at math, you know, like me. So it could be Kelly Wand. Wait, what's funny about 69? You'll have to ask Sean William Scott. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's supposed to be 88? The, the car's... No. 68. No so 68 is the quarter, and he says it's taken 22 years to get here. So I, I'm with you, Dingus. Like, I've, I seemed a little bit newer to me than I expected. <laughs> Yeah, uh, your dog agrees. Seems like that to my dog too. You're right. Yeah, but I think it. Yeah, I, unless I'm doing my math wrong, or unless Shigur is doing his math wrong, which is a distinct possibility. No Country for Old Men is 1990, which would seem. So then, if yeah, and that kind of works. If Llewellyn's a Vietnam vet, uh, you know, for, that would work. Yeah, if he's like. Four, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, uh, 1990. That's a good one. Uh, however, I think Kelly Wand, because I was thinking about this, the funniest number is 11. Huh? Yeah, because, first of all, visually, I like the irony of two ones right next to each other. So just visually, I think 11 is inherently... That is pretty hilarious. Now, here's another one, Kelly Wand. It's also the only number I know of that doesn't have its component numbers as an obvious part of the word. You know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then you go 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Like, they all have a part uh-huh. of the digit. 11? There's no 1 in there. What How do you get... What does 11 mean? There's no... Well, it has almost the word 7 in it. But it doesn't. But there's no 7 in it. So I, I think 11 is the funniest number in the English language. Kelly, when I was counting on you to come up with 69, you've failed me for the last time. 11's kind of funny. <laughs> All right, Kelly, what is, speaking of numbers, what is your number two choice for a notable sum of money in a movie? Oh, yeah, in Fargo? Uh, whatever the money is amount in the briefcase. What is it, a million? It's a million. So a million. Is that true? I think so. Isn't it a million? You should probably look these up. Oh. <laughs> All right, so I'll say a million dollars in Fargo. And that money, Kelly Wand, is still, because Fargo's based on a true story, that money is still buried somewhere off the side of the... Yeah, road. one chick looked for it. Somewhere in North Dakota. Yep. All right. But she didn't find it, so it's still there. Yep. So get cracking. That's the only part of that movie that actually is true, by the way, is that there's a million dollars buried by the side of the road. For all we know. By a spade. Dingus, what is your number two pick for a notable sum of money in a movie? And maybe you give us a line from the movie. I'd be happy to do so. Uh, look, $6,000, that's what I have. I'll give you all I have. That's nothing to sneeze at. I would take $6,000. I don't know. Kelly Wan, do you know it? Is zero with a line through it a number? Because that's kind of a funny number. It is it's not even a zero. Scandinavian countries, I think it is. Wait, what was the question? Sorry. Dingus, I don't think we know your line. Do it again. You don't. That'll help. Uh, my last two have the same uh, same number, actually. My my number two and my number one have the same number, and I didn't do that on purpose. I just was very excited to watch these two movies, and I love these two amounts. So you weren't you weren't they, setting yourself the task of making it where the sum of money is six thousand dollars in every movie. It was not, uh, and there's a there's a lovely sort of symmetry to to my number one choice, but I'll share that later. This this is a movie that I just watched uh, to prepare for a podcast. I hope we are going to do in the future, and this is a movie called Hard Eight, and it was uh, from 1996, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It's his first movie, and um, the character Sidney has been protecting his protege. And he sends his protege away. And Sydney is played by Philip Baker Hall. 
And Philip Baker Hall gets threatened by Jimmy, who is played by Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson has some information about Sidney, and so he is trying to extort this, but is also threatening with a gun. He says, give me $10,000, and I won't tell this information, and I won't kill you. And Philip Baker Hall, or Sidney, says, stop pointing the gun at me. And they have this long scene where he just is terrified of this gun. And this is all taking place in Reno. They both work in casinos. And uh, they're both gamblers. And finally, Sidney says, look, uh, I don't have $10,000. I've got 6000 That's all I have, and I'll give you that. And that sets in to... I, I don't want to give too much away because this movie is so pleasing to watch, and I encourage you guys to watch it again. Uh, but the, the sum that he uses to placate Samuel L. Jackson is $6,000. And it's what's funny about that is Samuel L. Jackson says... Give me ten thousand dollars, and he says, "All I have is six thousand dollars." And Samuel Jackson's like, "Okay." <laughs> well, considering he's getting it for free, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, right. But but the way that plays out, and the way the dialogue plays out when he finally gives him the money, is just so gratifying and beautiful. I just love the way uh, Hard Eight uh, plays its characters, and the way Philip Baker Hall you, speaks that early P.T. Anderson dialogue. It's just beautiful. It's its far better than I remember. Well, now the gear's returning, and I'm wondering what other movie has $6,000 that would be Dingus's number one pick. I don't, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh-huh. Well, Star Wars, it was credits. So. That's space money, by the way. Uh, by the way, how much, Kelly Wand, how much does a judge cost? <laughs> it's the same as Fargo, but not dollars. 40 40k 40 grand jeez a million credits you just saw the movie tonight you forgot how much a judge costs nice work nice work kelly wand that's not his fault he he just turns the handle (laughs) all right my number two pick is uh actually what inspired this topic it's the one that i didn't take off the table i I wanted to rewatch this movie and i didn't remember the specific sum the sum is seventy thousand dollars but what's notable about the sum is People who run into the main character keep misjudging the uh, song. That's my number one. Because they think there's no way he could do what he's doing for just $70,000. Uh, so Kelly Wan and I share payday, payback, not payday, uh, payback as our number one pick. And it, it's Mel Gibson. Um, and so Kelly Wan, I was thinking about this movie. I, I rewatched this. It's a Brian Helgeland written and directed movie. However, after he shot it, it was basically taken out of his hands because they thought that Mel Gibson's character was too unsympathetic. So they removed a scene where he slaps the Dickens out of Deborah Carr Unger, uh, like he basically beats his wife. Um, and that's a really, by the way, rough scene. Like he doesn't, he's not literally beating her, but the, the way they're physical with each other is really intense. She fucked up her ribs doing that scene. Man, when he, thro- when he throws her on the floor and it's not a stuntman, rewatching it, I was like, wow, that. That does not look safe, um, but it's it's grim stuff and it works. By the way, so so the the studio release had all this extra stuff at the end. They even recast. They they brought in Chris Christopherson to play a whole new character. Uh, there's a whole new final sequence with like uh, people getting kidnapped and counter kidnapped and a secret bomb and all this crazy stuff. Dog lives too. Uh, ah, right, right, right. Yep. Uh, so. Uh, but I, the the Brian Helgeland version, I guess you call the director's cut, is on Netflix. You can instant watch it. Uh, so the the point is, he uh, basically robs some people for a hundred thirty thousand, and his cut. Now wait a minute. What, oh, for hundred forty thousand, and his cut is half of it. 
and he just wants his half back. So he ends up having to track down the mob to whom this money was paid when his part was stolen, and they keep thinking he wants 130000 but he only wants 70000 He keeps correcting them. And I even love how some cops, some crooked cops, uh, get wind that he's looking for money, and they basically shake him down. And they say, when you get all your money, you got to give it to us. They have no idea how much it's supposed to be, and Bill Duke is one of the cops, and he's he's talking about what he's going to do. It's going to be split three ways amongst these guys, and he's talking about how what a great boat he's going to get. You, you know, with a third of 70000 is not going to be that great a boat. And nobody believes that that's all the money that he wants. Uh, so I love that about Payday. Now, here's the weird thing about Payday, Kelly Wand. Payback. Payback, thank you. What do you make of that title? Does that work for you? Uh, not really. Because it's, it's kind of like a revenge movie. He gets payback for what's been done to him. But the weird thing, he gets this, and then the movie still goes on for a while. Like, it's halfway into the movie when he shoots Clark Gregg in the face. Yeah. So he, he gets his revenge pretty quickly, and then it's just about trying to get the money back. So I I remember thinking the title implies revenge, so that doesn't really work. But the more I thought about it, Kelly Wand, I think the title does work because he just wants to be paid back the money that he was supposed to get. Right. Shakes him the whole whole movie to accomplish. Yeah. And that's what what eventually it leads up to. It's not about the revenge. It really is about the principle of the thing. And I don't know if if the studio cut opened this way, but the director's cut that Brian Helgeland put together actually opens with the dictionary definition of the word principle <laughs> appearing on the screen. Not like principle from alone, but like the principle of the thing, a core value or idea. Um, uh. I really like uh, Payback. Yeah, did you read the book? No, but I understand. So it's based on a book, and there was a 67 movie with Lee Marvin, where the sum is $93,000. So even that much earlier in time, it's even more money. Uh, So in the remake, he wants even less. Did you read the book? Yeah, I'm a fan of the series. He's a thief. He just keeps robbing shit for the whole thing. He's like a big dude. He's sort of like, he's got these giant clay-like hands and like dead hair kind of stuff. Man, it's a series. I did not know that. Yeah, it's really good. I've only I've only read like eight of them. And they're supposed to. There's like a whole uh, phase where he's like kind of married to this chick. I'm not sure what happens to her though. The Deborah Carr Unger character, like, is all that like his uh, wife being a heroin addict? All that. Just is the good. first book's that, and then the okay. second one, he's like. But it's weird because he just spends his time in between jobs, just like sitting in the dark, staring at nothing. So you don't know where his money goes. But the books are always just about these different heists he does. You're not sure. <laughs> he doesn't spend any of it on anything. Uh, what you're describing, Kelly Wan, doesn't make me think of Mel Gibson. No, but that was in, it was an interesting choice because then he's a, he's a sort of a shrimpy dude in that movie. So he yeah. has to use his smallness to like steal. But then it makes everybody underestimate him. So it's well, it's really funny. There's a scene where when the the two cops shake him down, right. they're standing on either side of him and they are towering over him and they like, punch him in the stomach a bunch of times. Oh yeah, he definitely like Mel Gibson gets beat up in movies a lot though, but he does not get made to look as short as he apparently actually is very often. If you can parse what I just said. Right. I don't know if that works. Uh, yeah, they definitely tower over. And you know what else is great, Kelly Wand, about uh, Payback? Uh, Lucy Liu's greatest role. That's the one good exactly. Lucy Liu. Oh, what do you mean one good? It's the first mm. of many, Kelly Wand, the first of many. She doesn't do it for me, except in that movie. I don't know. I think I'm in the minority on that. But. She is, as far as I'm concerned, the original chick in a tight outfit kicking some ass. 
She's the first Satoksa. All right. And she survives the movie, doesn't she? She does, and it's odd, too. It's an an odd survival because ultimately – so here's the thing, Kelly Wand. If payback is about him trying to get his money back just based on the principle of the thing, then the good guys in the movie should be that Asian gang from whom the money is stolen in the first place. It's not his money. It was theirs. I see. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but he stole it from them fair and square. Good point. Fair enough. All right. See, the thing stopped her heart because she was falling. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, I was wondering if you guys believed that urban legend that people who fall from a great height die of a heart attack before they hit the ground. No, that's what they want us to believe. All right. Only if they're dreaming about falling. (laughs) And then if you wake up, right? Dingus, give us a line from your number one notable sum of money, which happens to be $6,000, but what's a line from the movie? Before I do, I, I, I always assumed that payback, they just conveniently named it after that James Brown song just so they could use it for a trailer. Dingus might have a point, Kelly Wand. Hmm. So might... what's the what's the original, the 67? What's it called? Do you remember? Point uh, the, the Hunt. Oh, yeah, yeah, Point Blank. Yeah, but the, the book is The Hunter. Yeah. All right, Stark. I just, all I, whenever, and I really, really like that movie. Uh, I didn't remember the, the amount you're talking about, but I love that movie. Uh, but whenever somebody mentions it, I just remember that riff from the James Brown song. You might be right. That is that is a very good point, Dingus. And by the way, so I love uh, the fact that uh, his whole approach, you know, when somebody says, okay, we'll get you $130,000, and he has to correct them and say 70000 his whole approach <laughs> in this movie is that of an exasperated guy dealing with customer support and having to move up the chain <laughs> line to finally talk to the manager. Yeah, like, irritated. irritated. Right. <laughs> And except, and they that, can't believe it. They're just like he's irritated by it. Right? Exactly. What the fuck? Who's this guy? Like <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, all right, Dingus. What is your number one pick for a notable sum of money in a movie? All right. Here's a little bit of dialogue from the from my number one choice. The bet is six thousand dollars. I know what the bet is. I'm going to pee. Watch my cards. Casino Royale. I was thinking lock stock and smoking barrels. Oh, is it Daniel Craig? That seems well, like that seems like very small potatoes. For Daniel Jake Craig Fox. has a small bladder, we know. <laughs> That's right. After advocacy royale, he developed that. That's <laughs> from the point. scene with the soap. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a it's a, a movie from 1987 called House of Games, uh, uh-huh. directed and written by David Mamet. It's a good movie. And there's a number of there, there's a couple of notable sums in this movie, and. Uh, I haven't seen it in so long. And I was thinking of the large sum at the end, because it's a, it's, it's basically about a semi long con that they're doing on Lindsay Krauss. And I was thinking of this, this amount that she has to cover as the movie progressive, this, I couldn't remember what it was, 75, 80,000, 25,000, some big amount. But the way they hook her in is by tricking her in this card game to think that she has to cover Joe Mantegna's bet because he says that uh, Ricky J. Yep. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. R- Ricky J. Uh, has a tell, and she has to watch for his tell while he goes to the bathroom. And if he's bluffing, she'll see the tell because Ricky J. has been hiding it from Joe Mantegna, and he's been beating him all night. And the, what she has to do is she has to cover the, the final bet is $6,000, and she has to write a check to cover this bet because she saw the tell that she was wrong about it. And so that's how they hook her in, is to get her to write this $6,000 check. And I'd forgotten that little bit of her writing the $6,000 check. And so the $6,000 check, there's also a $20 moment 
a little bit after that as they show her a little larceny called the flu. So there's that's what I meant by a nice little symmetry. I've got two six thousands and two twenties kind of. Um but the six thousand dollars that she has to write a noble sum for House of Games. And Dingus's list is real mathematically tidy, Kelly Wand. Yeah. I Here's didn't a- want that. I I wanted like little things with decimal points and whatnot and, and all I could come up with was goofy things from I'm I'm the only one that went into cents, by the way, into anything less than a dollar. Uh, but well, I did, Tom. You, Kelly Wand, your total is let's see, ten thousand, one million, and seventy thousand. So your total, Kelly Wand, is one million eighty thousand. Dingus, your total is twelve thousand and twenty. Hmm. My total is once I do my last one, which is a thousand dollars, will be seventy-one thousand dollars and sixty-nine cents. So, so Kelly Wand, you uh, win. <laughs> you made the most money. But here's my $1,000 one. Um, and it's kind of even a cheat, because it's not technically $1,000. Uh, but in, in Unforgiven, uh, after the the prostitute in the beginning of the movie gets uh, gets maimed, she, she her face gets slashed by one of the Johns because she laughed at the size of his penis, and he freaks out and he cuts up her face. Uh, and Little Bill, played by Gene Hackman, he dispenses justice, which is basically economic recompensation to the guy who hired the prostitute. Uh, and the prostitutes don't think it's fair. So there's a great scene with Francis Farmer where they're putting their money together to hire, to, to put a bounty on the guy that cut up uh, the woman's face, put a bounty on him so that people will kill those those men, uh, the guy who cut up the woman's face and her accomplice, and collect the money. And they're coming up with how much money they've got, and they've only got like 500 or whatever dollars. Uh, so then we flash forward to the Schofield kid coming to Bill Money's farmstead and hiring him to say, hey, come with me. There's a $1,000 bounty that these prostitutes put up on a man who plucked out a, uh, that they, on a, man who plucked out a woman's eyes and they cut off her breasts. And it, it just becomes this mythical thing by the time that the story, you know, the prostitutes basically spin out by, by launching this sort of campaign. Uh, it acquires this legendary status almost uh, by by just announcing the bounty and exaggerating the amount of money they have. You don't know if they exaggerated what happened to the woman or if just in the retelling it spins out of control. But I love how when we fast forward to Bill Money hearing about this, it's it's gone up to a thousand dollars and the fate of the prostitute has just gotten that much worse. Uh, and all of this, this sum of money, sets in motion all the events that happen. Uh, in Unforgiven, um, so names of money. That's right. Oh, very good, Kelly Wand. That's not aimed for the dick, though. That's what I, would, way. Uh, if I was the prostitutes. Yeah. Uh, all right, brief runners up, and then we've, we'll see uh, if if any listeners have uh, emailed us their picks. What do you guys got? Oh, I didn't. No one, no one picked the six hundred and forty million dollars in bearer bonds from <laughs> Die Hard. <laughs> Earning thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah, because I always wondered. <laughs> First of all, I'm, when I saw Die Hard, I don't think I had any idea what a bearer bond was or why anyone should care. Or, uh, but I definitely remembered that it wasn't cash that they were getting, but bonds. And thinking, <laughs> is that really a good idea? I mean, is that really? That's how that works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the large sum one I had was four point four million in a simple plan, which is a movie. I, I wondered about how much that was. So they find four point four million dollars. Yeah, yeah, I think Good. so. See, if you can't remember the amount by just thinking back to it, it shouldn't be on the list. That's way too much math. And Tom, do you remember? This is uh, this is gonna. Do you remember if? 
Kyle, um, what's his name? Kyle in Bubble was talking about a specific amount of money he had hidden in his drawer. That's a good. I almost looked that one up. Uh, I I don't I don't know. I don't know how much money he lost. Well, you know what? I tried. To, I wanted to look up the amount that was put up for Ree's father for bail in Winter's Bone, but my freaking Blu-ray, my freaking. PlayStation 3 finally died, which is so annoying. And I only have Winter's Bone on Blu-ray, uh, so I couldn't find out. Do you guys remember? What a tragic life you lead. That's a really good one. I don't remember. And my, my PS3 died a while ago, Because she gets it back, by the way. And I don't remember if, if the specific sum is mentioned. Do we know how much it's going to cost for Hannah's uh, cochlear implant in Take Shelter? Oh. Is that it? I don't think so, because they're talking about insurance so much of the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, what about and go ahead. Terry Glenn Ross, how much the something stole? the? Uh, well, they're just stealing leads, and yeah. it, it's just the promise of future money. That Do we know how much Jonathan Price's check was for, the one that gets sent through that he wants them to hold in Glengarry Glenn Ross? Do we? No. All right. Uh, I, I wanted to look up, Dingus, the amount of money that the movers had to be paid in the opening of a separation. Uh, but it is not mentioned specifically. Uh, we, we do see uh, the wife go through, get, get out this big old wad of bills, and she's counting out money for them, because that leads to a huge misunderstanding later. But what you do hear early on in a separation is one of the characters who's there to uh, apply for a job to care for uh, the couple's elderly father. She is offered... 300,000 and her immediate response because I hear that and I'm like whoa that's I'd take that job her immediate response uh, that's not enough I have to take you know I have a long bus ride to get in I was thinking wow 300,000 wait what's the job again uh, it's a it's a, a a woman who's not very well off who's applying to a job for a middle class couple to care for their elderly father uh, and the the one of the the husband of the couple offers her 300,000 uh, but this is in Iran Kelly Wan, so the money is reals or I, I think that's what they have in Iran it's it's, it's it's one of no it's one of those uh, one of those currencies where you get like like Italian lira where the number is super high and sounds really impressive but apparently right. isn't it's like yeah. three cents yeah exactly they Kelly just want to say million every time they like buy gum right yeah to make it sound fancier uh, other runners up. We're about to see what folks listening to the podcast have mailed in as their picks. Um, the, um, something I, I love, but I didn't want to use Midnight Run yet again. I knew you, except, Dingus. I knew it. I knew Dingus was going to do this, Kelly Wand. What? Midnight's no, technically. On a it's how I much can... how much the dude takes from his daughter, right? No. Oh, <laughs> what was it then? <laughs> It, there, there's this, well, there, there's a there's a few numbers in this. Uh, there, there's the number he winds up with in, in the end. There's the number that he demands from the bail bondsman so that he can get out of this lousy, so, miserable business. But the number I really like, and this goes along with your uh, No Country for Old Men, Tom, is when they're in the coffee shop, uh, in the diner, and they're, in, they're talking about Treso and eggs, and Charles Grodin says, how, how much is coffee? And the waitress says, 53 cents. And he goes... How much is tea? And she goes, 53 cents. And he thinks, and he goes, I'll have tea. <laughs> I was trying to think of something like that, Dingus, like where somebody had to settle on a really low sum of money for something because he didn't have enough. Uh, that's a good one, Dingus. 
because because De Niro spent all their money getting a pack of cigarettes, and <laughs> all they have is this change. And Cronin looks at it. Meanwhile, he's got a belt full of money around his waist, and and uh, they're constantly dealing with money problems, trying to get to L.A. and uh, and De Niro's having his credit cards canceled and everything, and they and they get there and 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 he hands them this, and De Niro goes like, "You said you had money, but I didn't know you had money." I mean, it's, it's really, it's a cute little gag, but I just love that 53 cents. Oh, and yet Dingus still went for Lindsey Krause's $6,000 check in House of Games. That's right. All right, so we have a listener named Sebastian Dunn who says, this might bend the topic a bit, but hey, once upon a time in the West should have been in every 3x3. Three three. I blame Kelly. Anything of that Kelly want? <laughs> uh, so Harmonica, played by Charles Bronson, is explaining to Cheyenne, played by Jason Robards, Brett McBain's scheme to build his own town right on top of where the rail uh, must eventually be laid. Uh, and there's dialogue here. I can't do this dialogue. Okay, so Cheyenne says, Harmonica, a town built around a railroad. You could make a fortune, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hey, more than that, thousands of thousands. And Harmonica replies, they call them millions. Mm. Uh, if it wasn't millions, we couldn't have had that bit of dialogue, Sebastian Dunn says. Weak, I know, but I had to attempt it. Uh, I don't think that's weak at all. That is a notable sum, and that's characters doing math in the olden days when it was harder. Millions so, is as far as it went back then. I know. We hadn't even invented, invented. it yet. Right, right. So Sebastian Dunn's Millions in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, I quite like that one. Before we invented A.D. years, people had to tell time backwards. Uh, Cable Hicks says, uh, couldn't resist sending this one in. Two dollars. It's the quote from the movie Better Off Dead. He says it's a classic. It's it's a newspaper delivery boy hunting down John Cusack. Quite menacing. Two dollars. I guess I don't... You know what? I don't think I've ever seen Better Off Dead. No, that's a good one. I want my two dollars. Yeah. <laughs> is that the one where Phoebe Cates has his imaginary friend, or that's like Deadhead Fred or something? I don't think I've. Uh, yeah, I don't think I know this movie. All right, so two dollars. This is two dollars. Which, by the way, now makes me think of the one dollar in RoboCop that you would I would buy that for a dollar. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Paul Weimer writes and says he decided to go obscure with odd sums. Uh, three notable sums that come up in movies. Number three, $187. That is the paycheck that Josh, played by Tom Hanks, gets for his first week as an adult in Big. That's a good one, Paul. Uh, number two for Paul, $339.88. I like this already. It's going into cents. That's how much Rita, played by Andy McDowell, buys Phil, Bill Murray, for at the auction. In Groundhog Day. Wait, that's not an odd number. No, it's in that he goes to. He actually includes down to the cents. Like it's an it's an it's an unusual number. How's that, Kelly Wand? I see. Odd. So $339.88 is what Andy McDowell buys for Bill Murray for. I think Bill Murray's worth a fair bit more than that. Well, not, it's not real money though. She's not really getting it. Gonna and it depends. It depends which iteration. Too. Ah, good point. Uh, Paul's number one pick. $248. That's how much that Lone Star, played by Bill Pullman, takes as a reward for lunch, gas, and tolls from King Roland in Spaceballs instead of the promised million dollars. I thought wow. it was Spacebucks. It could be, but it's, uh, well, he, he gives the dollar sign. Maybe in the future that symbol means Spacebucks, Kelly Wand. 
So, Paul Weimer, thank you very much for those three. Scott McNeil gives us $1 million from Indecent Proposal, where Robert Redford offers to pay for one night with Demi Moore, who is somehow married to Woody Harrelson. And uh, yeah, we never find out what they use the million for. Well, I will say, Kelly Wan, that Scott McNeil says here he uh, hopes that you pick it, this one, Indecent Proposal. So you've disappointed Scott McNeil, Kelly Wan. Nice work. Why am I always on the hook for everything? He hoped you picked this. Uh, he does, by the way, also mention the sum in big that Tom Hanks cashes in his first paycheck for three dimes, a $100 bill, and 87 ones. He breaks it down by its component currency. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, quote, I can see Dingus discussing how magical money can be from a child's perspective. Um, and then uh, his number one pick for Scott McNeil is 100,000 Deutsche Marks in Run, Lola, Run. And that is the amount that Franca Potente must get in 20 minutes to pay her boyfriend's debt. And he actually, Scott McNeil, so I get we've all been called out on this one. Uh, Scott McNeil says that someone, probably Tom, will list this as his number two or number three just to swipe it from him. Uh, we have all disappointed Scott McNeil. Sorry, Scott. How many more are there? Four. <laughs> all right, here we go. Dan Winningham says uh, his suggestion is, oh, here's a weird, okay, $85,789.90. That is the amount of money in Richard Pryor's paycheck after he hacks the system to give him the fractions of a cent from everyone's paycheck in Superman 3. So Richard Pryor's take in Superman 3, $85,789.90. I think we all remember where we were with that. <laughs> and, and by the way, Dan was even good enough to send in a YouTube link. So uh, he's, he's bested Why'd us all. Why'd you say it like that? Why'd you say it YouTube? I could click on, on the YouTube link and watch YouTube. it. YouTube. Right. YouTube. <laughs> I'm These from people are alone. <laughs> These people are so much better than we are. Well, here we go. Here's a, a very good friend of the podcast, and of mine and Dingus's, named Aaron Kane. His picks, number three, uh, Dingus, he's, wow, I'm surprised Dingus didn't get this one. 600, okay, so if, if, uh, Hans Gruber was getting $640 million in bearer bonds in Die Hard, this guy has upstaged him by 10 million. So $650 million and change is the money seized by the U.S. government in the opening scene of Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> I think that's one of your favorite Sean Bean movies. I'm very disappointed in you. Uh, Aaron Kane's number two is Rain Man. Quote, that will be $1.5 million, please. I'll take it in cash, check, or transfer. I'm not greedy. I just want my half. Well, who says that? Charlie, ba Charlie Babbitt. Aaron Kane criticism. See the one that Nurse Ratched uh, lobotomizes? That would be Billy. Oh. And Nurse Ratched does not do the lobotomies, Kelly Wan. She just administers meds. Why'd you say it lobotomies? Also, uh, Aaron Kane for his number one pick, the $2 from uh, Better Off Dead. Yep. Very good. Okay, we've got two more. Soren Hugland says, uh, money sums are kind of hard to care about, but he's managed at least two that work as character reveals. I already like where Soren is going with this. His number three pick, the $1 fee killer charges in faster since it establishes beyond a doubt that he's just doing this to prove to himself how non-crippled and awesome he is. Actually, or he just saw Trading Places. And or he just saw Trading Places. But this is that super smooth assassin guy who does his missions for a dollar. That's a good Thank pixel. Grace. Yeah, I remember, I remember that. Very nice. Uh, here we go. The $70,000 Porter kills everyone for in his way, who's in his way in payback to everyone's amazement. It's a fair sum of money. 
while still being small enough to establish that it's about more than the money. It's about the principle. So, Soren, very good. We're with you there. At least two of us are. And, oh, here's another good one. Oh. Jesus Christ. I like this one. Soren's number one pick, A Serious Man. And his pick is the $3,000 retainer for the lawyer Uncle Arthur needs after his misadventures with sodomy. Just for being such a mundane, relatable final strain on Larry's finances that pushes him to accept the bribe and damn himself. Very good. Because you remember he opens that, he gets the bill for the $3,000 retainer. Mm. All right, finally, Nick Dingle. Uh, also a friend of the podcast, uh, says he tried really hard to find examples where the sum couldn't have been changed to something else, but he's not sure if that's possible. So his number three is an underseen Danny Boyle film called Millions uh, with, oh, what's that guy's name, Dingus? Uh, uh, the guy from uh, Bloody Sunday, um, James Nesbitt. Uh, uh, Millions, in which two kids in England find a bag containing 265,000 pounds. Uh, Nick right. says he loves that it's such an arbitrary amount, but seems big enough to seem miraculous from a kid's perspective, which ties into what was said about Big earlier. Uh, number two for Nick is a little movie called Die Hard, $640 million that Hans Gruber is trying to steal from the Nakatomi building. It's not that the sum is notable for its size, but just how delicious Alan Rickman is able to make it sound when he talks about how difficult it is to steal. Mm. Very good. Oh, I like this number one. Uh, I haven't seen this in a while. Uh, Nick's number one is Owning Mahoney. Uh, this is the movie where Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a pathetic banker who gambles away $10.2 million of his bank's money. The movie is apparently based on a true story. Uh, Nick says, I have no idea if $10.2 million is the actual amount that the real Mahoney gambled away, but it's the perfect amount for this story, large enough to make us feel the depth of his gambling problem, but not so huge as to be unrealistic. Man, I don't know. That's pretty huge to me. Kelly Wan, do you think you could dam- gamble away $10.2 million? On which game? Mm, craps. Poke. No. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. <laughs> Ten minutes. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Sebastian, Cable, Paul, Scott, Mr. Kane, Dan, Soren, and Nick for your picks. Those were all very good ones. Uh, and thank just you. if you're listening, you do not need to think up three. You can if you like. But uh, you're welcome to just send in one or two if you like. That was really cool. That was really cool. Yes. I'm so glad you had that idea, Tom. That was really cool. They're all more thoughtful than me. Well, Kelly Wan, what can you throw them for next week? What will our next week's 3x3 be? All right. So there's uh, movies that people quote all the time, like that blah, blah, fine Keanu thing. But... This is what I'm looking for from you is underrated quotes from oft quoted movies. So instead of blah blah fine Keanu, was she a great big fat person? Is obviously the best quote from Sounds of the Lambs. So a quote from a movie that isn't quoted enough from the underrated movie. quotes from oft quoted movies. Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Because <laughs> I hear was she a great big fat person? I hear that one all the time, Kelly Wand. And I hear it from Dingus. But Tom, do you care? <laughs> I care. Well, um, that's why I'm burning that as an as an example, so I don't have to worry about. I don't know. I can imagine an awful lot. <laughs> See, now You'll... that's not quoted very often. You will. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly, well, you sound right. pretty excited. Yeah, this is great. So, if you have some ideas for 
oft-quoted movies and the underutilized quotes from those oft-quoted movies. Uh, What could be more fun than that? uh, Send them to 3by3 at quarter2three.com. That's the number three, the letter X, the number three, at quarter2three.com, spelled out. Action quarter. We will be here next week with our picks for that, as well as... Did we decide what we're seeing next week? I did. I don't know what you guys... uh, We will be seeing Looper. Why are you making that noise, Kelly Wand? Well, if I was sure the Master was coming out here. We'll get to the Master eventually. Uh, By the way, Dingus... You mean in due course. (laughs) When Dingus uh, mentioned earlier that uh, he wanted to see Looper because he wasn't sure if Brick was a... What did you say, Dingus? Like a... An anomaly? Yeah, it was something like an anomaly. Because I didn't care for... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, if you saw Brothers Bloom, I, I think you might know the answer to that already. Uh... But we'll see. Yeah, can he redeem himself with Looper? I didn't care. Brothers Bloom, you know what? It's got Rachel Weiss. That's really that's about sixty percent of what any movie needs right there. So uh, that's what's enough. Looper got. Uh, I don't know. Let's see it and find out. Uh, I already know a little bit too much about it, so I, I don't want to get into that. So save that thought, Kelly Wan. We'll find out next week what Looper is about, and we will find out underused quotes <laughs> from overquoted movies. <laughs> You're welcome, Internet. Right, as for that, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Malinsky. It's Christian Morosky. And Kelly Wand. I am lucid, exciting, and delicious. Thanks very much. Oh. Tom, I had a candidate for you. All right, rock and roll. All right, so my friend Zorlon came up to visit. And I told him to look for, like, his most memorable Vancouver resident, because there's just, like, a bunch of... The city's, like, just, like, a bunch of David Lynch extras wandering around. So there's this one dude, or no, it was, like, a chick. And she had, like, purple flowers and an umbrella and an iPhone. And she had kind of that pinhead kind of look, like Alan Cummings, Adrian Brody. She just kept, like, staring sideways at people and then, like, walking back across the street. And then after a few minutes, it only goes, It's a dude! Yep, it's a dude. All right, Tales from Canada <laughs> by Kelly Wand. That's your takeaway for that? <laughs> I like the bit about uh, David. Uh, did you say David Lynch or David Cronenberg extras? It should have been oh, David Cronenberg. Oh, did you see the anti viral trailer? Uh, I didn't. I don't even know what that is. I don't watch trailers. Ah, uh, you know what I did see? It's the little featurette that Dingus and I heard about for uh, Les Miserables, and I've decided I can't wait to see Les Miserables now. What do you think of that, Kelly Wand? That's not what I asked about at all. But, uh... <laughs> Welcome to the inside of your head. It's kind of empty in here. <laughs>